Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be here, thank you. Yeah. So I wanted to start our discussion about the U.S. southern border. There's a lot of videos that I've been seeing coming out, and of course, I mean, the, the data supports it too, but the, the videos are good anecdotal evidence of people coming in from the Middle East. Cameramen are down there asking them questions. What brings you here? What are you doing here? Where are you from? Oh, I'm from Yemen. I'm from, you know, sometimes even Iran. I'm from this country, this country. How likely is it that a terrorist or a terrorist cell could or has already slipped in through the U.S. southern border? Highly likely. I think even the uh, Homeland Security people have, have acknowledged that there's a lot of people in the terror watch lists that have been later apprehended or sneak through. So it's, it's, a, it's a statistical guarantee that terrorists have come across the southern border. I think that's one of the reasons the, the Biden administration has been so pathetic in responding to now hundreds of Iranian attacks against U.S. personnel, against U.S. ships by the Houthis or even by other Iranian proxies uh, because they're so worried about the Iranians that for probably two decades have been flying on the on the, the daily flight, the Mahan Air flight from Tehran to Caracas, getting rebadged as Venezuelans and then walking north. I'm sure they've embedded a lot of cells across the United States to do exactly that, to respond inside America if uh, the U.S. gets into open conflict with Tehran. So you're saying that one of the reasons that the Biden administration is so reluctant to do anything about the Houthis is because they're worried about a domestic response from yes. Iranian cells that they know are inside the country already. That is correct. That's, sh that's shocking to hear. That, that, that's like actually shocking to hear. Uh, well, wow. but, but explain why we would have such a pathetic response to 160-some attacks against U.S. forces in Iraq or Syria when Biden announces, telegraphs, oh, yeah, we're going to give a response, and then five or six days later, they bomb empty warehouses. These are not serious people in charge in Washington, and that's why our opponents, our enemies, are having really a free-for-all, moving and shooting and, and doing what they want. Imagine you have new U.S. Navy warships that have had to fire 40 and 50 missiles to fend off all these attacks from kamikaze drones, from uh, anti-ship cruise missiles, to even anti-ship ballistic missiles fired at U.S. Navy ships. They have sunk a number of commercial vessels now. Yeah, they've taken hostages of, of commercial mariners. So really what the Iranians have done is they've empowered the Houthis to be super long-range pirates. Right, the Somali pirates years ago, eh, they had a skiff. They could go out a couple hundred miles, look for a ship, try to attack it, seize it. Now the Houthis can, stand, can sit ashore and fire missiles out to a thousand miles offshore. But the really concerning thing is the Houthis need targeting information to do that. And they're getting it from an Iranian spy ship that's cruising around the Red Sea through the Bab al-Mandab. It's obvious we know what the ship is and why the U.S. Navy hasn't sent it to the bottom is beyond me. Because all those attacks going against U.S. Navy warships is being targeted by the Iranians, not the Houthis. Well, I, I could imagine like one, one defense of that would be that if we directly attack an Iranian ship, an Iranian flagship, that could, you know, escalate to something even even broader, not, not even domestically, but like, you know, internationally. Uh, but but you think that that's just accidents happen because it's not even a declared warship. It's a commercial vessel that's been completely redone, um, uh, completely reflagged. Uh, I have I I think it's the uh, the Shahzad. I forget the exact name of it, but I, I saw the uh, the marine identifier for it. And it's been converted to be a full on spy ship slash special operations support vessel for the IRGC. So what do you think a good solution would be to 
to solve the Houthi issue? Like, like well, I guess one would be to sink the ship that's allowing the, the, mis the guided missiles, right? But what, is, is that all? I guess the, the only analogy is to look back at what worked in previously in history. So in the 1960s, we had Nasser in Egypt, who was at that point the expansionist, pan-Arabist guy stimulated by the Soviet Union. And he invaded Yemen with 50,000 soldiers, deposed the monarch, and had taken over much of the country. The British government was very upset because the monarch, the, whatever was left of the monarch government was, was pinned in, in Aden. The Saudis were very upset, and even the Israelis were upset. And so what do they do? They hired David Sterling. David Sterling was the founder of the SAS, a very unconventional thinker. He brought a merry band of men, paid by the Saudis in gold, armed by the Israelis. The Israeli, you can imagine, the Saudis and the Israelis cooperating against on Yemen back in the 60s already. How, how, how big was it? How big was this group of men? Uh, it was about 50 men. It was a trainer, advisor, special operations role to enable the um, other Yemeni forces to, uh, to get after the Egyptians. The Egyptians were very serious about fighting. They even used chemical weapons all through the country. Uh, but, but David Sterling and his men clearly outfought them, drove them out of, uh, of Yemen, just to ask you, so these group of 50 men, they did this by themselves or they came in, they went into the country and recruited people who were down They, they the worked with other Yemeni forces. With Yemen, it was the classic special operations mission with a few very capable people recruiting, hiring, enabling local forces to be more effective. And in this case, what should happen in Yemen is you still have the, the Southern Transition Council, the guys that are in Aden as a government, that have been fighting against the Houthis because the Houthis try to take over the entire country after Saleh was deposed, the Saudis and the Emiratis were trying to help the Southern Transition defeat the Houthis. While that was happening, the Biden, then Obama State Department was hammering them, saying, oh, it's terrible, human rights abuses, all the rest. And so they ended up pulling back. It's empowered the Houthis, and they have been armed, trained, guided. And trust me, there are plenty of IRGC, Iranian personnel, on the ground with the Houthis, helping them with targeting, helping them put those weapons together. So a, a hybrid contracted Yemeni force that could smash the Houthis is the only way this is getting solved. You're not, you're not sending the 1st Marine Division. You're not going to send Saudis. The Emiratis are not going to send anybody. This doesn't get solved until you put a boot on the neck of the Houthis and make them stop. So from, from the... From the eastern flank, I guess, right? So it would east come and in south. Right, right. Yep. The east and the south. Sada is the center of gravity for the Houthis. Mm -hmm. Threaten them there. Mm -hmm. Threaten them there, and the Houthis will pull back on the rest of the country. But you know, it's so it's so funny that you that you lay this out because whether it's in Yemen or or Gaza, it seems like the current like neoliberal worldview is like antithetical to that approach to go in to get the local resistance fighters to help them actually achieve the goal. It's, it's more like just coming in, bomb, bombing, 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 it's, it's bombing. A, it's as old as warfare. Yeah. Okay. But, but if it's as old as warfare, I mean, there's military schools like you should, I mean, I, I, what do I know? But I mean, if you're studying this stuff, you should know that that, does, that doesn't work, right? Conventional militaries tend to, 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 to operate in a bubble. And to, and to believe their own doctrine and believe in their own systems. And that's the thing that the, the I guess the benefit of coming at it as a, as a special, well, there's a fundamental difference between special operations personnel and conventional military. In a special operations unit, you equip the man because the man is the weapon system because he's, he's trained to be innovative, to operate in a very small group with very few resources and he's got to make something happen. 
but a conventional military, you man the equipment, right? Because in, a, in an infantry division, the artillery and the tanks is what does the heavy fighting and the killing, and you just man the equipment and you make it run. So it's a fundamental difference. These brush fire wars are primarily unconventional wars, and you have to fight it unconventionally. What happened, what worked well in the first six months of Afghanistan for the U.S.? A hundred special operations personnel, backed by air power, and they smashed the Taliban. Once the conventional military rolled in, for the next 19 and a half years, we went in circles. We largely circled the drain, finally going down the drain in August of 2021. If they had limited, if they had never let the conventional U.S. military into Afghanistan, it all would have ended much better. Okay, so we discussed Yemen. Now, of course, what's happening there is directly tied to what's happening in Gaza. And now, let me, before we even go to Gaza from Yemen, right. the next place we have to worry about is Egypt. Why? 90% of the Suez ship traffic, it's got to go through the Babel Mandab. It's down. 90% of the traffic is, is reduced because the Houthis are shooting at everything. Egypt's economy is 40% based on Suez traffic. Their currency devalued by 25% last week. You have 110 million people, largely angry, living in poverty, with a tendency towards the Muslim Brotherhood. The reason the Muslim Brotherhood is not in power right now is because Sisi took power because uh, Morsi was going to kill him a few years ago. So you're basically one bullet away if, if I hope nothing happens to Sisi and they're able, able to keep power. But if the Muslim Brotherhood takes over, which is certainly what Qatar wants, Maybe it's even what the Biden administration wants, since they have a, seem to have a predisposition towards the Muslim Brotherhood and radical Islam. That is exceedingly dangerous for Israel, and it's another major choke point that is lost to Western use. Yeah. I mean, the, the latest that— 50 percent of the world's container traffic passes through there. Yeah, I, I saw the latest—the the numbers, it was something like—they've uh, only pulled in something crazy low, like— 400 million in, in, uh, in traffic fees for the Suez Canal, whereas it should have been like upwards of a, a billion dollars in that same time period, yep. which is, I guess, the last two months or something like that. So, yeah, that, that's devastating. That's a problem. That's a compounding problem that's going to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And, and, and the farther they get behind the power curve in Egypt, you're going to have a lot of poor people. You're going to have big demonstrations in the streets. You'll have Al Jazeera, uh, sponsored by Qatar and the Muslim Brotherhood, spinning up trouble. And, and, and losing Egypt, if you think the Syrian civil war and collapse was bad, Egypt is four times as big. Well, it's not going to help if uh, all the Palestinian people are going to be suddenly pushed into uh, to the Sinai Desert. And that's, and that's another two million, right? So that's, yeah. a, that's terrible and that's a problem, yeah. but 100 million With Egyptians already. a lot of agitators already. there as well. Right? Certainly. Right. Yep. Well, let me ask you this. So the legitimate solution I can imagine to the Houthi situation and, and then, you know, also the Suez Canal situation by, by proxy, would be a, a, the ceasefire in, in Gaza, right? I mean, the Houthis, if you take their word for it, and when there was a short period of a, of a ceasefire, they did stop firing on, on, the, on, on uh, ships in the Red Sea. So let, in, in that sense, let's turn to what's happening in Gaza. How effective do you think the campaign there is currently by, by I'd, Israel? I'd say it's a bit stuck right now because uh, they started the campaign in the north end of Gaza. It means a lot of people moved from the north to the south and they're up against the Rafah border crossing. I think there's going to be some efforts made to build some humanitarian camps so people have a place to go that is safe because basically the, the few thousand remaining Hamas terrorists are hiding underneath hundreds of thousands of innocent Palestinian people who are just trying not to die. 
I mean, just from your experience, uh, you know, running Blackwater, obviously, I mean, how effective are they really being? Because it seems like they're not winning the hearts and minds of the, of the gods and people. I mean, unless I'm missing something, but it seems like the casualty it's, it's rates. It's an impossibly bad situation. Yeah, right. Urban combat is hard. Urban combat with thousands, hundreds of thousands of civilians in the mix is an impossibly difficult situation. Even more so if you're trying to rescue the still hundred hostages, including six American citizens, that are held by Hamas. Remember, you know, the Biden administration keeps ignoring the fact that six Americans are held hostage by Hamas, similar to the Carter administration where you had 52 Americans held for 444 days. Unacceptable. Right. And I, f I see a lot of discussion heading towards the area of like, well, if Israel, you know, declared a ceasefire, then the, the situation in the Red Sea would dissipate. But very few people talk about the fact that Israel would do, do a ceasefire if the Hamas, you know, Hamas organization would hand over the, the hostages back, right? Yeah. So that, that's kind of never discussed. But, like, that's probably not going to happen, I mean, because they don't seem to really care how, how much of their populace dies as a result of this campaign. So, I mean, like, I mean, like what, what do you see as an actual feasible, good po po possible solution to what's taking place in Gaza? Like, is there a good possible solution? Build large-scale refugee camps in the middle of Gaza and do it quickly. I mean, it would have to be done quickly because Rafa, from my understanding, will be bombed within the next uh, few weeks, right? Everything comes down to a race for logistics. So let's say if they were to build those refugee camps in, 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 the, in the empty space, sort of in the middle between the, between the different cities within the Gaza Strip. North of Khan Yunus. There are no tunnels down there, right, in, in that area? Certainly less. Less. Yes. So I mean, high density of tunnels up in Gaza City, in Khan Yunus, and in, in Rafa. Look, I, I advised the IDF early on to let me help them with, with Texas drilling technology. Uh, Israel, a lot of smart people. I've never met an Israeli roughneck or Israeli drilling engineer from the, from the oil fields of Texas. So there's a lot of great technology that's available and we could have flooded the tunnels, which would have taken away tunnels as a, as a means for strategic maneuver by Hamas. It would have flooded their ammunition stores, denied them movement, and it would have been a forcing function because they don't want their hostages to drown. So flooding the tunnels would have taken away a place that they could store the hostages and at least bring them up above ground where you'd have a much better chance of rescuing them. Why do they choose to not go that route? I think they were pressured to not by the Pentagon and, and, and the attempts they did make were not using big enough, uh, big enough pumps, big enough hoses. I mean, I, I wanted to bring pumps that would have moved 60,000 gallons a minute, literally 1,000 gallons a second. But, but I, I mean, that sounds to me like as a layperson, that's a phenomenal solution. But like, I, I thought so too. Right. Apparently not. No. I mean, the, the only objection I can imagine is that they would say, well, they would allow the hostages to be killed as a, you know, as a... Re no, I don't no? think so. Look, there's a lot of hostages that are still killed, even when the soldier, when the IDF guys get close, yeah. trying to get to them behind blast doors, behind all the barriers. It's exceedingly dangerous trying to do, you know, a, a linear tube attack in a hostage rescue mission. So it's very low likelihood. I mean, they were successful last week. They rescued a couple of hostages. Great. But the other track record of success has not been, not been that way. Yeah. So what's your opinion of a long-term solution? I mean, you know, the war can't go on forever. Like, what, what do you think the 10-year, 20-year solution would be to this? I think they should bring in Najib Bukele from El Salvador because he's Palestinian. He's a Palestinian Christian. He was born in El Salvador, but his family came from, from, from Palestine. What do you think he can do? I, well, I just, I saw him speak here yesterday. He's phenomenal what he's done. 
in El Salvador. It was the murder capital of the Western Hemisphere. And now it's safer than Prince William County, where the FBI Academy is located in Virginia. Uh, it's, a, it's a clear case that leadership matters and, and um, a rule of law candidate, a, a leader like that in Gaza, would liberate the, the Palestinian people from being, being governed by, by a terrorist gang. So you basically a leader, however he comes into power in Gaza, who treats Hamas like a cartel, essentially, like like yeah. like a cartel. There's a lot of similarities between Hamas and MS-13. Well, <laughs> whether that that's a feasible solution or not, but uh, that's my suggestion. Yeah. Well, that's a th outside the box thinking, I guess. That's what uh, that's what you guys are. It's are good known to live for. there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So since you mentioned cartels, let, let's uh, shift a little bit over to Mexico. Uh, which is, of course, you know how a lot of people are crossing the U.S. southern border with the use of cartels. There's been talks, well, I mean, for a long time now, but I guess it's resurging with the possibility of a second Trump administration of uh, designating the cartels as uh, terrorist organizations. What would that look like in practice? Would it just be like endless kinetic warfare on the U.S. southern border if we were to do that? Look, the I feel terrible for a Mexican policeman who, if he's trying to do the right thing, comes up against an overwhelming force, right? And they come to him and they say, I think it's... Uh, Plomo y plato, lead or silver, or silver or lead. And it is the impossible offer of take my money, let me bribe you, or I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to kill your entire family, I'm going to kill them first so you can watch. Liberating the Mexican people from that kind of oppression is a good thing. I think there's, the U.S. government does not have a great track record of finishing those kind of insurgencies, but a trained advisory, if there's a will within, within Mexico, to clean up their act, uh, it, it's it's maybe worth considering, but but delivering consequences to the cartels whose business is to traffic drugs and to traffic people into America legally, it's going to continue to compound and grow until there's consequences delivered. But I think it's also important for the American people to have a little self-reflection on this, that the only reason the the drugs are coming to America is because people buy them. And so whether you're buying Coke or pot or fentanyl, or whatever it is, that demand is literally killing tens of thousands of people, um, and it's just a hundred. It's a thousand percent wrong. The fentanyl issue is one that we should deal with, but that deals that goes all the way back to the roots in China. That is clearly, and I've seen the data. It is clearly a CCP-sponsored. I would say almost it's a it's an FU response to the opium wars that the British did to them in the 1840s and 1850s. They are absolutely pushing fentanyl. It killed 109,000 Americans last year. The precursor chemicals produced in the Wuhan area, pushed to Venezuela, pushed to Mexico, formulated into very high doses of fentanyl. And here's the irrational thing. If you're in the drug business, you don't want to kill your customers. So the way that that fentanyl is fabricated, is formulated in such toxic do doses, it's, it's absolutely, it's a covert action by the CCP to destroy the United States. So uh, I can imagine if there's a scenario like a big high profile either drug overdose you know, case where like a lot of people let's say die in a given month or uh, like a terrorist attack where the terrorists came from the U.S. southern border, the push to redesignate these cartels as a terrorist organization would get a lot of traction. And let's say if it happens, what can you tell people? How would that look like in practice? Like, Would we actually just be endlessly fighting a battle there? I have a very good idea what that would look like, but I'm not going to talk about it on here. <laughs> Why not? Why give away tactics, techniques, and procedures? Why let them know you're coming? My concern is like I, I have a small son, and I would hate for him to get caught up in any, you know, in any battle that could be avoided. Exactly. Yeah. 
So the best way to avoid the battle is for America to clean up its drug habit. Okay. A couple of, couple of more international conflicts, if you don't mind. Venezuela voted. They recently voted to uh, go into and take 60% uh, of Guyana, the sort of middle. The U.S. increased their force posture after that, after that vote in, in the region. What's your opinion the of that? The U.S. force posture was all nonsense. Look, the Venezuela doing this is socialist dictator that's ruined his country, bullying his neighbor. Guyana has effectively no military. And the Biden administration agreed to drop oil sanctions on Venezuela in exchange for them supposing to have a election in Venezuela in October of this year. When they agreed to that, the opposition in Venezuela got together. Maria Karina Machado, a fantastic libertarian lady, won like 90-some percent of the primary vote to really make her the clear opposition figure. Within 10 days of that event, which really shocked the regime, what does the regime do? They roll out the old nonsense of, oh, we claim the Essequibo area of Guyana, which is about 70% of the landmass. Why? Because offshore of Guyana, there's been the largest new oil discovery in the Western Hemisphere in decades, called the Starbrook Formation. It made Guyana the, the fastest growing economy in the world for the last two years. Well, while everyone was shrinking because of COVID, it was like a big yeah, outlier, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so Guyana is starting to make money. It's a tiny, poor, it's the only English-speaking country in South America. It's an ex-British colony. And they're just getting bullied. They look and depend on the United States, but I don't think the United States doesn't understand how to do deterrence in an unconventional asymmetric warfare kind of, kind of environment. So what have the Venezuelans done? They've, flo they've flowed thousands of, of special forces troops to the border area, put them in civilian clothes, walked them across the border into the Essequibo area, and I think you'll see some, they'll do something probably in April or May of this year. Let me ask you this question uh, in, in closing. With all these different conflicts that, that are happening around the world, including Taiwan and China, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but that's a possibility. And then you have all the domestic problems in the U.S., uh, including the you know, ballooning national debt and, and a, a plethora of problems. What should, in your opinion, the U.S.'s role internationally be if, over the next 20 years? Because it seems to me, at least, if we keep dipping our toes into all these different conflicts, like what happened with Israel, because we've dipped our toe in that, you know, we're forced to kind of like police the entire area more and more in, over the next several years. Same thing in Latin America, same thing in Asia. If we're stretched so thin, all the problems in, back home. Collapsing credibility and collapsing deterrence is causing this compounding effect of our opponents and our enemies seeing that opportunity and taking it because they know the U.S. sucks at closing. We don't know how to put these fires out whether it's in Afghanistan, having spent trillions of dollars there, being chased out by, by the Taliban, or really being pushed out of Iraq now by the Iranians. That's going to continue. But I think you should look at the continuum of statecraft. 10% can be solved by embassies and, and diplomacy. The other 10% should be solved by the military. But mostly they should be there and they should be fearsome, waiting to be let off leash not focusing on woke and diversity and all the other nonsense. They should be focused on lethality. Very scary. The middle is the intelligence world, and there's a lot of covert action that can be used to solve these problems so they don't become a big problem requiring big military intervention. That's where we've been failing. We have a CIA that's completely lost its way, and, and we have people that don't use the covert action authorities and the cleverness that it takes to take on nation-state adversaries that, that will play the game. When the CIA won't even acknowledge, right, they call it anomalous health incidents. 
when these people, when, when, uh, when CIA personnel have had their brains microwaved in all kinds of cities around the world, hundreds of our people being hurt, and, and, they, and they say, no, you're lying, or you're making it up, come on. That is an unserious organization, and we need serious change there to fix it to deter our enemies. The foreign policy of the United States should be our friends should love us, our rivals should respect us, and our enemies should fear us. All three of those people, all three of those groups are wondering what the hell the United States has been doing, and it's time to change it. Mr. Prince, thank you so much.